Trump just threatened in a tweet a 20% tariff on uh, European car imports. Yo, boy. Which would be huge deal. Oh, boy. <clears throat> um, and I find myself wondering what Charles Krauthammer would have thought of that. But unfortunately, Charles Krauthammer died yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Okay, more on that story to come. I, I'm shaking my head. But anyway, uh, Charles Krauthammer, who was uh, an amazingly courageous, classy, intelligent, persuasive, funny guy, writer, commentary, passed, uh, commentator, passed away. And if you knew him and loved him, you knew him and loved him. If you didn't, maybe you'll get a hint why so many people did. We're rerunning an interview from a few years back um, uh, about his book, Things That Matter. That'll become apparent, I think. Charles Krauthammer is, according to David Brooks of the New York Times, not only the most influential conservative commentator in America, his writing transcends the crush of daily events and can be read with profit always. Joe Scarborough said, without a doubt, the most powerful force in American conservatism. And he's got a new book out called Things That Matter that just debuted at number two on Amazon's nonfiction list. I assume behind O'Reilly's damnable killing somebody or other book. Things that matter, three decades of passions, pastimes, and politics. Charles Krauthammer joins us. Charles, it's always a pleasure. How are you? Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Is O'Reilly keeping you out of the top spot? Is that what's going on? Well, here I am crawling up the mountain, and there he is standing there. So <laughs> I've got to figure, I've, I've pulled out a very smooth stone in my slingshot, <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll see how this works next week. Well, you know when you take over number one, he's going to crank out ch- Killing Krauthammer in about I two know. days. That's what I hear. That's his next book. Very good. So it's uh, going to be an instant bestseller, particularly in the more liberal precincts of the country. <laughs> you know, uh, I have a feeling you're running into a lot of uh, love on your your media tour. Read the book. There's a lot of it here. I know I, Joe Getty, watch you every afternoon on the elliptical. Does it bother you that I am red faced and panting while I listen to you on Brett Bear's show? Johnny Carson once said, "It's humbling to realize that people, thirty million people, are watching you every night between their feet." <laughs> so I'd rather have you panting it on an elliptical. Right. So I read these little blurbs where uh, people that I respect called you uh, among the most influential and powerful voices in conservatism. Define conservatism for me. Well, I mean, it changes with every era. I would say that today, the essence of conservatism is a is a devotion to limited government, a resistance to the ever expanding entitlement state and a kind of what you might call constitutionalism, a kind of, I mean, using as your lodestar a return to the kind of government that was initially envisioned by the founders, realizing we're not going to have an 18th century republic, but using that as your compass to try to keep the welfare state from swallowing up all the other great institutions in society. How how optimistic are you that that message can be sold in uh, modern America and going forward? The idea of small, limited government. Well, I'm I'm rather optimistic because I think if you look and I write about this in one of the columns where I'm examining the results of the elections where Republicans stormed back into power in '94, and of course where they did in 2010 that what Obama called a shellacking. Um, if you ask people, the Gallup poll asked people to self-identify ideologically, the numbers are very, very stable. Uh, conservative, about 40%. Liberal, about 20 Moderate, about 35 The other 5% have no idea what planet they're living on. <laughs> so, but it's two to one. And I think in the end that if you make the case, and if you make it well, 
uh, generally will win the elections. Conservatives will win. There's always personalities that intercede if you don't have a great candidate. That can cost you. But we lost in 2012. We had an honorable man but a weak candidate. 2010, there's nobody at the top of the ticket. It's an off-year election. And we won very handily. That tells me the ideology, the ideas, uh, the drive behind conservatism is still the dominant one in the country. Just needs to be expressed. I think we would both agree with your characterization of Mitt Romney. Uh, it's disappointing uh, to us that there hasn't emerged a great spokesman for what we're talking about, um, because it is such a persuasive case. I mean, the, yeah. the case for freedom, the the case for right. well, self reliance, maybe less so to a lazy America, but free enterprise is great. How can we not find an effective spokesperson? Well, I mean, that is sort of accidents of history. Reagan came out of nowhere. Nobody expected Reagan. Nobody expected him to be as great as he was. And sometimes you can't see that until they get onto the scene. I do think that we have a very strong bench. We're going to have a very strong series of candidates, as opposed to last time around when I thought it was particularly weak. We're going to have governors like Bobby Jindal. We're going to have Chris Christie, Scott Walker of Wisconsin, Susanna Martinez of New Mexico, Jeb Bush, uh, the former governor. I mean, he's got a problem, of course, his last name. Mm -hmm. So I have a suggestion. Change it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I've got one. Okay. Jeb Ochocinco. (laughs) That way way he gets two constituencies at once, Hispanics and wide receivers. (laughs) Fabulous idea, Charles Crownhammer. But, you know, I'm thinking about, I know, know, and we've talked about that Gallup poll, too. You you look at it and you think, well, two to one people claim that they want, uh, you know, a limited government. But the percentage of people that pay taxes uh, keeps going down. The percentage of people that get some sort of piece of the welfare state keeps growing and growing and growing. I just worry that we cross a tipping point where there are so many people dependent on the government, there's no coming back from it. No, I think that's absolutely right. That's the great fear of conservatives. That we're sort of in a race against time to stop the expansion before you get to that tipping point. But I would point out something that I think is really important. It's happening right now before our eyes. If Obamacare collapses, and Obamacare is the great example of the entitlement state, this is this is the uh, uh, sort of the absolute extreme and most important element of the Obama and the liberal agenda. If it falls apart, as it seems to be doing, there's no guarantee, but I think it's quite probable. Uh, I think that will set back liberalism for a generation. Wow. What did you think of the Honorable Ms. Sebelius's testimony yesterday? I hate to say this because I come off like a softy. I almost felt sorry for almost felt sorry for her. I pulled back from the cliff <laughs> uh, because I mean this is she had no cards in her hand, and I, I wouldn't think it's important for Republicans to be really, um, really careful in questioning the facts of what's happening in this rollout are so damning. Let the facts speak for themselves. You don't need invective. You don't need to be satirical. You don't need to do any of that. Just ask plain, simple questions. The answers are going to be so bad that they will speak for themselves. Charles Krauthammer's new book is Things That Matter, Three Decades of Passions, Pastimes, and Politics, um, including references to everything from Border Collies to Haley's Comets, from Woody Allen to Winston Churchill. Is that a single column? All those things? That would be that would be the zaniest column ever. <laughs> be Larry you know, King, that's right? An, that's an excellent idea. I think I'll work on that for next week. <laughs> so you know, I have a series of columns about interesting people, 
And also, I mean, I have these sort of weird eccentric interests. People who followed me know baseball, chess, space, all this kind of stuff, uh, monuments. And there's a lot of that in the book. That, that's the stuff that I think really matters. But on the other hand, there's a lot on politics because in the end, if you get the politics wrong in a society, you can have all the beautiful, elegant stuff in life, but it can get swept away. And that's why I devoted my life to politics. So I left medicine to do that. Wow. that's a, I'm going to memorize that. Uh, how, I'm going to go back and listen to my own show and memorize that. Uh, how did you come to your political beliefs? Or maybe the better question is, how do, how do most people end up where they are? I think people initially are born into their political tribe. You get it from your folks. You get it from your environment. You get it from your school. And I think around the time of your mid-teens, start to go to college. You start to form your own ideas. And for me, I was a, um, a Cold War liberal, a Democrat in my 20s. And then the change that happened to me was very simple. I, I'm open to empirical evidence. As you know, I was a doctor before I became a writer. And uh, when you're a doctor and you're, turns out the treatment that you're giving is killing your patients, uh, you stop the treatment. And I remember when the first empirical statistical studies from the Great Society of the War on Poverty started to come in, in the 1980s when I was in my 30s, it was clear that not only was the War on Poverty in the Great Society a failure, but it was undermining and destroying the very communities it was trying to help. So I didn't have an overnight epiphany where I woke up in the morning and said, I think I'll be a conservative. The Lord has spoken to me. It was uh, absorbing all this social science evidence and realizing that for all their good intentions, liberals were ruining things. I mean, really ruining things. And I began to examine the alternate way to do it, and that led me to be a kind of small government conservative. But it- all right, let's uh, pause it right there, and we'll continue on the other side of the break. Yeah, Charles Krauthammer a few years back. Yeah, some interesting stuff. The book, The Things That Matter, with his idea that um, you know politics is a, is a rotten, stinky business full of liars and thieves, but it's the way everything happens. Right. So you have to you know close your pinch your nose closed, roll up your sleeves, and get after it, and try to win it for your side. Uh, more on that coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the of, of the nation. Charles Krauthammer a number of years ago. Charles Krauthammer died yesterday. If you're into Charles Krauthammer, the Washington Post's coverage of this, because he worked there forever, um, lots of great columns and videos and stuff like that. Really good stuff if, if you're into Charles Krauthammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we were just uh, talking when we left out the interview about how he came to conservatism and how, in his view, it's about empirical evidence, you know, as I've put it and. Thomas Sowell's put it, the difference between what sounds good and what actually works. But uh, picking up with our interview, last time we talked to Charles Krauthammer uh, on the Armstrong and Getty Show. But is it ever possible to get the nation to the answer of, we need less money and less of these programs, as opposed to the answer being, well, obviously, if this is failing, we just need to give it more money? Well, you know, I write about this in the book where I wrote about that uh, evolution that I had. In fact, it's the, I think it's 
there's an original essay at the beginning of the book that's never been published before, and it's a very long autobiographical essay on that transformation. And, you know, in thinking about it, I think you're right. You've got to make the case. But even though, I mean, I think in the end, even though people will begin to get a lot of goodies, and they may depend on that, they still have a sense of this being a free society. There's a reason why we have a Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor and not a Statue of Equality. And then you just, if you believe, as I do, I think as conservatives, that in the end, in the end, the excessive paternalism uh, and, and spending of the welfare state cannot succeed. As Maggie Thatcher once said, the reason socialism it doesn't work is that ultimately socialists, at some point, socialists run out of other people's money to spend. The facts speak for themselves. I, and I, you know, I'm referring, for example, to Obamacare. I think it's going to be a disaster. So whatever the propaganda surrounding it, whatever the sweet rhetoric, however Obama applies his silver tongue to it, you can't fix it with words if it doesn't work in practice. So I have a kind of a bedrock belief that, since I do believe that the liberal welfare state in the end, unless it adapts and takes radical changes, which would be conservative changes, it will fail. I think that will speak for itself, and people will respond to the facts. Charles Krauthammer is on the line. We were talking about transitions a minute ago, and I, I find the story of your transition from uh, physician and psychiatrist to uh, journalist, writer, uh, pundit really interesting and kind of amusing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I was sort of ambivalent when I was in college, and I write this is again the subject of the introduction to the book. I couldn't quite decide whether to become a doctor, as as most of my family is. So I applied to medical school because I sort of felt obligated to do it. But I really was interested in politics, so I went to Oxford instead to do some graduate study of political theory. But and one day I woke up. Well, this was an epiphany, and I thought, you know. I'm just kind of spinning out into a world of theory and all that, and I better, I better get real. So I went downstairs. This was in Oxford. Picked up the phone. It was at the end of August. Called Harvard Medical School and said, you know, I'm on deferred, deferred admission. How about, how about next week when school, when the year starts? And she said to me, we just had somebody drop out of the class. If you're here by Monday, you're in. <laughs> so I hopped on a plane. I took a toothbrush. I did not pack. I, w- I went there on time. I got there. <laughs> the funny part is when I woke up uh, the next day in Boston, I thought to myself, oh, my God, what have I done? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was no going back. So I spent seven years as a medical student and then as a resident and chief resident in psychiatry at Mass General Hospital. And I'm grateful for that time. I wasn't cut out to be a doctor. And I realized that, and I began to start to write. At what age, how old were you when you started to, to, to write and decide that might be what you want to do for a living? Well, I quit medicine at 28. I came to Washington to work in the Carter administration on the DSM-3, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychiatry, to try to guide it, uh, uh, to guide the research to produce that manual. So I came down as a bureaucrat in the National Institutes of Mental Health. So I'm 28 when this is happening. I'm not terribly happy in that, but I thought, you know, if I come to Washington, one thing will lead to another. This is where they do the politics, isn't it? So I started to write. It was picked up by a magazine called The New Republic. And then one thing led to another, and Walter Mondale, the vice president, uh, asked me to be a speechwriter for him in 1980. 
So that's where, you know, people ask me, how do you go from Walter Mondale to Fox News? The answer is, I was young once. <laughs> Charles Crowdhammer's book is Things That Matter, number two on Amazon's nonfiction list. Oh, actually, uh, it's number two on the New York Times list. Now. Okay, gotcha. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, quick question before we let you go. Barack Obama, there's a, there's a lot of people trying to uh, put the tag on him right now that he's the bystander president, that sort of thing, that yeah. he doesn't have any idea what's going on. Do you think that sticks, and do you think that's true? Is this orchestrated, that, that he pretends not to know, or does he actually not know what's going on in all these different things? That's really interesting. I. I'm not even sure I know anymore. I, I used to think it was all a show. It was all a put on. It was all a way to protect himself, you know, uh, plausible deniability, that kind of thing. Uh, like the Merkel thing, the Angela Merkel listening in, wiretapping her phone. I, I find it hard to believe he didn't know that. But, you know, presidents always deny knowing any of this sleazy little stuff, particularly the foreign stuff. On the other, I can't quite figure it out. He's a very smart man. I've spent about the five hours in, in private, off-the-record meetings with him over the, the five, well, in two occasions, once a few weeks ago and once a week before he was sworn in. He's engaging, he's smart, and he knows nuance of policy. He may not be quite at the Clinton level, but he's way up there. So it's hard for me to believe, for example, what they're saying is that he didn't know when he said, if you like your health insurance policy, you keep it. Uh, they're pretending that he you know, he wasn't really aware of the fact that there would be hundreds of thousands of cancellation letters going out. I find that hard to believe. I can't prove it. But I think he's far more engaged than it shows. But when things go south, they protect him by pretending you know he's been out golfing. Or I would suggest when the truth that maybe America isn't quite ready for progressive-wise yeah. comes out, he can yeah. deny it as well. Well, we don't want to be greedy with your uh, time. Um, Charles Krauthammer, Things That Matter, Three Decades of Passions, Pastimes and Politics. Uh, can't wait to read it. And uh, you're always welcome here, needless to say. Thanks. Thank you so much, guys. All right, you got it. Charles Krauthammer. Some of the highlights from that book are in the Washington Post today, as I mentioned, as they've got a great tribute to one of their most popular writers. But... I have a new career goal, to be a speechwriter for a vice president, because you can unleash some serious eloquence and be proud of it, and if you screwed up, nobody'd care, because it's a vice president, so if you wrote a crappy speech, nobody'd notice. And, uh... Did you hear the vice president's speech the other day? No. No. <laughs> nobody did. Interesting. Interesting. I can't, I, can't, I can't get past the life story part of he had one of the worst things happen that you can have happen to you, broke his neck as a young man, and uh, and just moved past it. I'm pissed that he's gone. Yeah, it's, it's a drag for the conversation. There's no doubt about that, the political conversation. Speaking of which, what do you got coming up in your news, Marshall? Well, Donald Trump's trade war really ramping up. We got more on the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark cell phone privacy ruling and... The possible connection between Alzheimer's and herpes. Coming up. That's yeah, great. Because <laughs> either one is such a treat. Nobody's taking this Trump European car tariff threat seriously, are they? It's Nobody bluster. thinks he'd actually Please. do it. It's got to just be bluster. No, I'm sure it is. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Enough for replaying the Krauthammer interview. We'll be buying the book in hardcover. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it, and it's it's worth reading. A lot of his columns uh, are really good. 
Boy, uh, his, his, it's, it's about life more than it's about politics. His commentary as the Republican field was starting to come together mm. for uh, who is running for president. Of course, nobody, nobody knew that was going to happen. Just goes to show you, you can be incredibly intelligent and wise and wrong. I absolutely would have voted for Jeb Ochocinco. <laughs> Uh, let's get the news now with Marsha Phillips. Oh, boy, I'll tell you, President Trump ramping things up, threatening to slap a 20% tariff on cars from the European Union. Trump tweeting this morning, based on the tariffs and trade barriers long placed on the U.S. and its great companies and workers by the European Union, if those tariffs and barriers are not soon broken down and removed, we will be placing a 20% tariff on all of their cars coming into the u.s so is that as simple as uh, pick the european car you're thinking of buying bmw mercedes whatever you just take 20 percent of that price and add to it correct yeah Yeah, unless they have such markup that they you know can reduce the price you know to make this thing a little less but you know uh, often trump mystifies me i get what he's doing here i wish we could talk to charles krauthammer about it did you know he's collected more than three quarters of a billion dollars so far on the metal import tariffs. Yeah, I was just reading about that, but um, it, it's pretty clear that he is making it uh, apparent to everyone that we're arguing with the enormous power of the United States to screw with them, and he wants to throw all those trade relationships that you know emerged in the post-war era up in the air and, and, and reset them all, and I think it's a really, really good idea. I wouldn't go about it like this. But I'm super curious to see how it ends. I'm still pretty optimistic that there is no trade war right now. There are a couple of tariffs that are a little painful for a few industries. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, the talk of a trade war is a little overblown. But um, And I'm really hopeful that everybody says, all right, all right, all right, and backs down. Right. And we come up with better, more even-handed, productive trade relationships. I still think there's a really good chance of that. But I don't know that that's going to happen. Right. I can't and, wait to find out. And Trump was firing this off today after the EU slapped tariffs on $3 billion in U.S. products, things ranging, ranging from bourbon to motorcycles in retaliation for Trump's decision to tax imported steel and tariffs. So the back and forth uh, continues. We keep raising the uh, raising the, uh, pole, the pole there, the bar. I have a couple more. of foreign cars. I have a couple yes. of domestic cars. I have too many cars. But I will tell you this. I can't buy a BMW. You should. They're wonderful cars. Beautifully engineered. Great driving cars. Beautifully designed. I suggest you go out and buy one. But I can't because of the term Beamer. I will never, I have never, and will never own a BMW because of the term Beamer. I find it so obnoxious. So cloyingly self-pleased. I've never said the word unless I was referring to it as a word I won't say. Exactly. <laughs> and that is like not the, the N-word. And that is not the fault of the no. Bayern, oh, absolutely right. Bayern Motorwerken. Right. That no. is not their fault. But it is insufferable. Major Supreme Court decision today. In a 5-4 decision, the high court gave a big win to privacy advocates, ruling that police generally have to get a warrant before they can get cell phone records to plot the movements of individual customers. The decision is going to require police departments all across the country to get a search warrant in order to get a hold of telephone company records that track where a user has been. The great significance of this is that the the doctrine, the, 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 
the body of belief about third-party information yes. has changed. Yes. Were you about to go into that? Well, yeah. The, okay, the argument ahead. had been that phone companies can provide customers uh, data law enforcement because they own those records, not the person. Well, more importantly, in, in, yeah. in a broader sense, yeah. if, if I willingly give information to Jack, right. I can no longer howl that the cops must get a warrant. Because, uh, look, I'm giving it out already. Right. It's obviously not that private. But that's an old way of looking at yep. it in the world of cell phones and data and then Yahoo and the, your, your emails are saved and the rest of it. Nobody has any idea who has right. their information. Plus, the whole willingly give it thing right. is not really accurate because what my option is to not be a guy who has a cell phone. Well, that's unrealistic. Well, right. And so, again, it just has really changed the way the courts are going to look at third-party possession of of information. And, you know, if you're a uh, pro-law and order guy, all they have to do is get a warrant. Yep. So, you know, I think everybody will be okay. But But, I like the fact that they have to get a warrant. Well, I'm glad that the ancient, at least enough of the ancients, were willing to understand reality of life. I'm not willingly giving my my information to AT&T. I have to have a smartphone to survive yeah. to be a, a citizen in the U.S. like everybody else. And the phone companies keep that information. Uh, That's I, not me willingly giving it to them. I, I was really surprised. It was Chief Justice Roberts yep. and the four liberals who mm-hmm. joined together on this decision. Um, I consider myself a conservative, and one of the bedrocks of conservatism in my head is constitutional rights. So I haven't read the four different dissents. The four dissenters, the conservative bloc, each right. wrote their own Oh, no, you didn't. Um, I haven't read those yet, but I'm, I can't wait. Chief Justice Roberts. Because I'm weird and have a boring life. Chief Justice <laughs> Roberts wrote the uh, court's opinion, and he pointed out that allowing government access to historical GPS data infringes on a person's Fourth Amendment protections and the expectation of privacy by providing law enforcement with an all-encompassing record of their whereabouts. He added that God, historical... It, think, if, think if this had gone the other direction yeah. and it was a 5-4 decision. Yeah. That the cops can get any information on everywhere you've been anytime yep. they want to just because they're interested. And God knows what else. Third-party yeah, information. Right. Emails, texts, etc. Right. And Robert's adding that historical GPS, uh, GPS data presents an even greater privacy risk than real-time GPS monitoring. Because you have that whole sure. history of movement. I would agree with that. They know everywhere you've ever been. Mm-hmm. All right, another story. We got scientists saying the childhood viruses that remain dormant in the human body may be linked to Alzheimer's disease. The study in the journal Neuron found that two common strains of the herpes virus were more abundant in the brains of those who ended up dying from Alzheimer's. And those viruses affect almost 90% of all children. The team at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York also found evidence that the viruses can interact with brain cells in ways that can accelerate the disease. Hmm. Yeah, boy. The findings adding credence to a decades-old idea that an infection can cause Alzheimer's. It also suggests it may be possible to prevent or slow uh, Alzheimer's using antiviral drugs or drugs that modulate how immune cells in the brain respond to the infection. But the the, the number that stood out to me is the 90% yes. of kids end up with the herpes virus in their body? Yes. And Jimmy, I, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is that you have herpes. The bad news is that it will cause Alzheimer's. I'm sorry, I misspoke. I have nothing but bad news. 
There but, is no good news. But if it's 90%, that's practically everybody. Yeah, now they're saying despite the data being so provocative, the finding doesn't truly prove that these viruses cause Alzheimer's. They're going to continue to explore the links and possibilities. Well, and there are multiple quote-unquote herpes viruses, too, including the one yes. that virtually everybody has, which is yes. the, the, the uh, chicken poxy one. Yeah. Yeah, the one that causes cause the shingles well, yeah, and my, stuff yeah. like that. My right. point is, if practically everybody has it, even if they find the link, then what are you going to do? Okay, that's interesting. They're linked. How are you going to stop from 90% of people from getting that virus that everybody has? That's a different question. Indeed. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips here. Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. It's almost as if human beings aren't designed to live forever. I don't quite get how... Time Magazine's cover gets any attention because who gets a magazine What's anymore? What's a magazine? It's a website they print on paper for, for some, some reason. reason. <laughs> Seems very inefficient. <laughs> but the cover of this week's Time, again, whatever that means, oh, yeah. uh, has gotten a lot of uh, attention and it's getting slammed by lefties. As well it should. Yeah, because it's pretty out of bounds. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Where I come from isn't all that great. My automobile is a piece of crap. My fashion. So your digging into it has led you to believe that the whole Tom Arnold breaking news story is not as big a deal as I thought it was? No, Tom Arnold's a pretty clever um uh promoter. Yeah, he's he's doing a show in which he's seeking out damning videotape of Donald Trump to bring him down. And that's the premise of the show. He's like, it's a, what was those, those silly uh, but thoroughly enjoyable Nicolas Cage mo- national treasure? It's like he's he's seeking. He's like the Indiana Jones of of videotape of Trump dropping n bombs or God knows what else. Yeah, and that's the format of the show. And he interviews Michael Cohen. He said he said that Cohen's on board. I say to Michael, guess what? We're taking Trump down together. And Michael Cohen said, okay, and his wife okay. said, and his wife said, okay, F Trump. Okay. Yeah, but he didn't give him anything, and he didn't... Yet. Okay, all right. What, are you getting okay. cut, or what? So the Time Magazine <laughs> cover, if you haven't seen it, you remember the little crying girl that got the most attention? Yes. She was wearing our little red jacket. Yes. She yes. was right next to her mom. Yeah, it was, it was uncool. I mean, I didn't enjoy that at all. But anyway, so Time Magazine took... Kids. Just cry a lot when their parents get arrested. Happens every day. Um, they got a little picture of the picture of the little girl on the cover of the magazine. It's just her, the little girl looking up, crying. And instead of her mother, it's Donald Trump looking down, saying, saying, welcome to America. Probably wanting to kick her. Um, and, uh, who's this from? Uh, this is, uh, the website Vox. uh, Vox. Yes, Vox. Time magazine's cover isn't bold or brave. It's exploitative. 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 There you go. When a heart-wrenching when a, when a heart-wrenching <laughs> photograph isn't enough, it tells us something distressing about society and media, says Vox. The cover of Time magazine for voice, you know. Back to you. The cover of Time magazine's uh, issue depicting President Trump and a crying immigrant child is being shared at lightning speed across the internet. I've seen it five thousand times, and there might not be five thousand print copies of Time magazine in America. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I wonder why Time did this. Uh, pe- people are calling it powerful, chilling, and bold social commentary. 
you're likely already to have seen a news image on what it's based, taken by a Getty photographer. Yeah, it was it was the image that turned the the story around. I think I I think it's probably the image that caused Trump to his his wife to complain, his daughter to complain, Laura Bush to complain, and for Trump to say, "All right, this isn't working the way I wanted," and and change his position. Um. When I saw Time Magazine's cover this morning, what I can say and only describe is the misuse of Moore's original image. My immediate reaction was rage, they say in Vox. I see it as an insensitive and exploitive play to sell magazines, and one that, albeit unintentionally, offers up this personal tragedy to be memed and ridiculed. Well, it will certainly be memed. Well, the, yes. The, the point and is... And I'm looking forward to seeing them. The point is, what is the point? Do I have a point? Hi, what the is point your point? Is, if the image was so powerful, then why not just let that moment be the cover? Why did you have to do this? Yeah, well, it's Trump it, staring down at the little girl. Pretty clearly, they're looking for pub, and they got it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I don't know if there's something wrong with me. Well, there's plenty wrong with me, but... I'll, I'll check the text line. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just... I, I just uh, I look at that and I think, well, that's really overblown and overwrought and it is exploitive, but it's like a political cartoon. I get it. It's some pretty good, powerful, unfair political imagery, but I'm not going to get outraged over it. I just, I'm just, the fake outrage thing is just, it's become so pervasive. I just, I can't go there. It's, that was way out of bounds and, and the rest of it, but God, it's, it's, it's troll America. Everybody's trolling everyone at every moment. Everything's overly vehement. See, I don't know what's true or what not. What's not? I've heard this bouncing around. I haven't tried to verify it. It's almost impossible to verify anything in the modern world. Uh, but I've heard a number of people say the kid's father, that particular kid, says that mom took the two-year-old without permission against his wishes, leaving behind their other children because she needed a kid to get across the border. That's entirely possible. I don't know if it did. Yeah, we. You know, we. Talk- it doesn't really matter. It, the, the The truth of a particular picture doesn't really matter, does it? If if the overall uh, story is the same, yeah. But if you're going to manipulate and or motivate human beings, uh, that sort of powerful image is really really useful. But but if it fits, it if 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 that sort of thing is occurring, does mm-hmm. this specific instance have to be that? I see what you're saying. Yeah, right. Yeah, what, what it's all most, symbolic. One of the most famous pictures in photojournalism history. Was was like this, and I didn't learn it until the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary. Ah, yes. The guy uh, on the street with a gun to another dude's head right. who had his hands tied behind his back. South Vietnamese general executing a dude. Right. And so that Summarily was. Summarily in the street without trial. And that was a major turning point of how are we supporting a government that does this, shoots people in the streets with their hands behind their back? Right. Well, that guy was going around shooting people. <laughs> He'd just blown up a restaurant full of women and children, and just, he was, he was a dangerous mf right he was a bad guy that oh, yeah. if you'd have known the whole story you'd have said i'm glad he shot him but similar to this little girl the overall story was the same we were supporting a government that was doing a lot of bad things and it wasn't what we were being told and blah 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 and i'd say the uh, little girl uh running naked away from the napalm attack was a humdinger as yeah, well true um but <clears> anyway <throat> the, the, the point is if it the reason these things take off is it's supporting an argument that is real or real for a lot of people does that make any sense? Uh, yeah. So yeah. if you if you tear down and say, hey, this little girl is actually a midget. It's not even a child. Well, it doesn't make any difference if the it, overall story but is. it would. It would because of the way people are. 
Because people don't think rationally. Most people don't think rationally. They don't think about the pros and cons of policy, then advocate the one they find most wise. They, they know how it makes them feel, and so they bellow for something that'll make them feel better. Mm. Facts be damned. Speaking of facts, Jack, can you handle the facts? Latest Probably Rasm- not. R- latest Rasmussen report, uh, National Telephone and Online Survey, blah, 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 blah. 54% of likely U.S. voters say the parents are more to blame than the government for separating the children. Uh, that's an interesting number. Yeah. Now, Rasmussen is a conservative-leading organization. It's all about the wording of the question. Um, if it's I, even close to that number, yeah. though, that's not the way it's been portrayed in the media. It's an obvious horror to everyone involved. Sure, of course. Well, yeah. And and nobody is in favor of uh, pro-life positions, according to the media. And there are a hundred right. examples. You get, a, you get a wildly distorted view of what America thinks if you watch the media or listen or read. Um, only 35% believe the federal government is more to blame for enforcing the law. 11% are not sure. Um, but this is likely voters now. I'll be interested to see where Trump's approval rating goes in a couple of weeks, because he's been doing pretty well. He's been on an upswing, mostly, I think, on the economy in North Korea. I wonder if he starts to backslide over this issue. 60% of Democrats say the government is more to blame. Um, 75% of Democrats think the Trump administration is too aggressive in trying to stop the flow of illegals. A view shared by only 23% of Republicans, but a plurality, 46%, of unaffiliated voters. So, so close to half. It's a little poisonous as an issue for Trump and Republicans. You are listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show.